If you would, open your Bibles again to Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. When we look at that very first sentence there in verse 14, it says, Now, after John was arrested, we find that, that in this particular passage that after the baptism of Jesus Christ, which marked the beginning or the pinnacle of Mark's ministry, um, there is an undisclosed period of time. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how much time passes uh, before we see him imprisoned or at least arrested at this particular point. And at that point, we see uh, that his influence and his ministry now begins to wane. It begins to kind of fade out into the background of the Gospel of Mark. Now, uh, that's important to know because we know that through that John knew that this had to happen. He wasn't afraid of it to happening. He actually invited it. Uh, the Bible says in John chapter 3 and verse 30, John said, he goes, he must increase, speaking of Jesus, and he said of himself, I must decrease. I love John the Baptist because he's a guy who gets it. He's a guy that really sees things for how it is. He's the guy that literally he walks around with the t-shirt and actually means what it says when it says it's not about me, okay? He, he, he knows it's not about him. He knows that it's about Jesus. He knows that he's the pointer, but Jesus is the point. Got it? He's, he's, he, he, is, he, he has to get out of the way so that the way can come. And so what we find here in verse 14 is, is, is John is beginning to kind of ride off into the sunset. Jesus is now coming to the forefront and coming to the fullness of his ministry is now ultimately beginning at this particular point. And we, we see that here in the beginning of verse 14 again where it says Jesus came into Galilee and notice what he was doing in his ministry. He was proclaiming. He was proclaiming. The uh, Greek word there literally means um, to herald. It's the word that we use for preaching. We don't often think of Jesus as being a preacher, do we? Right? Um, he, but he did. He was the greatest preacher who had ever lived or ever would live. The rest of us are just trying to kind of, you know, play preach, right? We're trying to be like him as much as we can, but none of us can hold a candle to Jesus Christ. And so he would ultimately preach. Now, I think it's interesting that here in the book of Mark, he says that in Jesus' ministry, he highlights that he preached because when you read the same parallel passages and the other gospels in Matthew and in Luke, what we find there is they say that Jesus was doing a whole lot more than just preaching. He was casting out demons and he was healing the sick. But it's interesting here because remember, Marx writes this for a purpose and he leaves things out for a specific purpose. And the reason he's leaving it out is he's trying to draw attention to the preaching ministry of Jesus Christ. So since he's drawing attention to it, our attention needs to be drawn to it as well. You know, I think it's interesting that Jesus viewed preaching and had preaching as the primary aspect of his ministry while he was here on earth. And yet people today, uh, lost people, of course, and then also those who uh, claim to be believers in Jesus Christ, they don't really oftentimes have a high view of preaching. If you go to some very modern churches, and there's some wonderful modern churches, I guess we're kind of more modern, I guess, but some of them think that the preaching needs to be condensed. Uh, it needs to be really just something that's kind of slapped in there, that what's most important is everything else, because this is how they think. We live in a world that is driven through entertainment. Now, that I agree with. Everything has to be entertainment. If you're going to teach kids, it's got to be entertaining. You know, break something out, break puppets out or something, you know. Uh, You've you got to entertain them somehow to be able to keep their attention. In the same exact way in the preaching of the Word, they think for a person to come out and to look at a book, an ancient book, and look down on it, and word by word, and verse by verse, verb by verb, noun by noun, just work through it. Boy, that kind of sounds a little 
That's what we do. That sounds actually kind of boring, doesn't it? But anyway, to work through it that way, that the kind of audience that we work with today, they're just not going to hang there with you. So what they say is, hey, man, the way to, way to reach people is not through preaching. The way to really reach people for God is really just entertainment. The more entertainment we have and the better entertainment that we have, then the better it's ultimately going to be. But, you know, Jesus apparently disagrees with that. Here is Jesus who is God. Okay, so get that. He is God. He could determine any method or mode that he wants to use to bring people, draw people to faith in him. And the sovereign, all-knowing, all-wise, powerful God chooses preaching to be his mode by which people are transformed and why, how people come to faith in God. That's a pretty amazing thing. There's a, there's a very well-known, or at least for many uh, that read church history, a well-known um, um, monk by the name of Francis of Assisi. And he is most known for a quote that I don't think he ever actually said, but it's ascribed to him. They say that Francis of Assisi said this. He said, preach the gospel always when necessary, use words. Okay, so we understand what he's saying. I really, I, I don't think he actually said it. There's no evidence that he actually said it, but you know what his point, the point is, right? In other words, practice what you preach. If you're going to preach the gospel, then live the gospel, for you to live the go- or preach the gospel and live the gospel, uh, people begin to kind of question that. But here's what I want you to understand just for a moment is you need to understand that you are preachers in a sense as well. That just as Christ preached the gospel, you're called to preach the gospel as well. You're called to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to those who are around you. And please understand something very quickly. Nobody's ever going to get saved by your life. They're not going to interpret and by you living a good moral life and, and not lying and cheating and stealing and doing those kinds of things or at least trying to stop. Nobody's going to sit there and go, oh, I get it. Now I know how to be saved. The only way somebody can be saved is according to the word of God is that faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. It has to be proclaimed. So Jesus views this preaching and proclaiming of truth as very, very important. And Mark views it as very, very important. We ought to as well. But the question then comes up, what was Jesus preaching? Remember a long time ago, some of you might remember in the beginning of last year, I did a series on the theology of the hearer. And I said, God has not called us to preach good stuff, a lot of good stuff to talk about. He wants us to preach God stuff, right? And so it's important what is being preached. And here what we see is, is Mark tells us. He says, he came proclaiming the gospel of God. Saying, now look down at your Bibles with me. You're looking at me, and I could be lying to you, okay? All right, look. It, listen to me just real quick. Quick teaching moment. It doesn't matter what I say unless it's according to the Word. You guys got that? If it's according to the Word, you must obey and must submit, or you will be held accountable. All right, we all clear now? Now do we feel good? Move forward? All right, so here's what he says. Look at the verse with me. The Bible says, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, I know that some of you are sitting there going, listen, if he was the best preacher that ever preached, and this is one of his sermons that he's preaching in verse 15, then, Brother Mike, you need to learn something from Jesus and preach this short of a message every Sunday. Right? It's written down just in verse 14. You know, if he could use that. Now, we should understand, use our minds and understand that this isn't a full sermon and all that Jesus would preach. But what he's in essence doing is he's just kind of funneling down, just kind of in a nutshell, what the essentials were that Jesus preached during his three, three and a half years of ministry. And we see that right here, and it's identified with four different words. 
What we find in, in, in the text of Scripture is, is, is he says four ideas. He came preaching the gospel of God. He came preaching the kingdom of God. And he, kept, he, preached, he, he preached repentance, and he preached belief. Now, since we're taking the Lord's Supper, I thought that this would be a perfect time to stop right here, because normally if we're just reading through this, we blaze through it, but I think this is significant. I think it's going to help us to better understand what it was, what Jesus' message was, and what it was that he was trying to convey to us. So let me break down each one of those just very quickly, beginning with the gospel. What is the gospel? Now, you would think for a people, uh, people who are coming to church, you think, a Christian church, that you would think that they would automatically know what the gospel is, that we could all sit down. But let me, let me suggest something. This morning, if you would have come in and you would have had a sheet of paper and I would have given you a pen or a pencil, and I would have had, defi- it, it was a test, and I said, define these four terms. I guarantee that some of you would have stressed out because you stress out because it's a test, even if you know the answer. But so the rest of you would really have a hard time really being able to succinctly and accurately define those four terms that we just read about just a minute ago. You'd have a hard time really defining the gospel. We'd see a lot of this and a lot of hmm and a lot of this, you know, going on. So I think it's important that we define this, what is the gospel? And uh, in Greg Gilbert's book, uh, I've I've, I've encouraged many of you to be able to get this book. It's actually entitled, What is the Gospel? And in there, he has a list of definitions of people defining what the gospel actually is to them. And these are evangelical leaders. And, he, and this is what they say. Three definitions. First, first one. The good news, that is the gospel, um, is God wants you to show you uh, his incredible favor. He wants to fill your life with new wine, but are you willing to get rid of your old wineskins? Will you start thinking bigger? Will you enlarge your vision and get rid of, of those old negative mindsets that hold you back? Definition number two. The good news is that God's face will always be turned toward you. Well, that's nice. Regardless of what you have done. Well, that's even better. Where you have been and how many mistakes you've made. He loves you and is turned in your direction looking for you. All right, definition number two. Here's another way it's defined. My understanding of Jesus' message is that he teaches us to live in the reality of God now, here and today. It's not as if though, it's almost as though as if Jesus keeps saying, change your life, live this particular way. Now, let me say this. If you were confused about what the gospel was, if you weren't confused before I read those, you might very well be confused now. Because that's not saying a whole lot. It's saying a whole lot, but I'm not so sure I can even get my arms around. I don't even really completely know what they're saying. Are y'all, anybody identifying with me there? So what in the world is the gospel? Well, let me try to define that for you. Uh, so that when, at the end, when we have a test, you can pass it. Um, just joking. All right, so let me define it two ways. First of all, there is the gospel in the broad sense. All right, you'll, you'll understand this in a minute. Gospel in the broad sense, here it is. Um, perfect God created a perfect world and a perfect garden, and he created a perfectly created man and woman, placed them in there. They had a perfect relationship, perfect relationship with him. Man blew it. Actually, his wife did. And then, you know, man did as well. All right, and they blew it. And so God pushes them out of the garden. They go outside of the garden. All of creation, including man, fall underneath the curse of sin. Now, instead of God's perfect love, just simply his love, now there's a new element, God's righteous wrath, which now burns towards rebellious man. But we know through the word of God that God in his infinite wisdom and in his infinite 
mercy and his infinite love. He drew men and reconciled man, sinful man, back to himself. And what he did was he eventually then would change them. Spiritually, he would create them anew. Later, he would ultimately bring and give them a new body. And then ultimately, when it all said and done, he would bring about a new garden, a new heaven, a new earth, where he began and had the same purpose for us, and we would fulfill that purpose as we did in the garden. What is that purpose? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, that's the gospel message in a broad sense. That is the story of Genesis through the book of Revelation, is it not? But there's something missing in that story. In the broad sense, something's lacking, something's missing. And what it is, is we're lacking uh, the gospel in the narrow sense. In other words, it's telling us what God is doing or what God has done, but it's not telling us how he did it. Do do, Do you get with me? How did he make this reconciliation possible? And that's where we come with really defining the gospel in the narrow sense. Now, how do we define it? Well, let's let the scriptures do that for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verses 3 through 6, Paul is, is, is reminding them of the gospel that he first received and he preached to the Corinthians. And he writes this. He says, For I, I delivered to you as of my first importance what I also received. Now, here it is. It's the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So what happens is the broad sense we have that redemptive plan for mankind, the narrow sense we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does the gospel include, the essence of the gospel? It includes Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, why is that so important? It's so important because many folks are like, hey, I'm trying to share the gospel with somebody. And this is kind of how we do it, right? We're kind of like, hey, listen, man, God's got a plan for your life. I shared the gospel the other day. Okay, technically, um, yeah, you, you, you kind of did, in a broad sense, you were sharing the gospel with somebody, uh, an aspect of God, because certainly God does have a plan for your life, right? Or, or here, here's this one. Hey, listen, man, I know you're hurting, but you've got a God-sized hole in your heart that only God can fill, right? Now, that's true. There is an essence there. Haven't you seen people where they were trying everything else in the world and they, they were still empty and they weren't completely satisfied? They hadn't drank of the living water yet or the, or, or, or the bread of life? They haven't taken of that yet. And so we could sit there and say, hey, listen, man, you look a little down. Did you know that God wants you to have joy? Now, is that true? Yes. You know what? God, God wants you to have peace inside of your heart. All that's true. And all those are in the broad sense are parts and aspects of of. of of the gospel of God, but you're missing the most important thing, the gospel in a narrow sense. If you're going to truly share the gospel of Jesus Christ, it must include the teaching of his life, death, and his burial, and his resurrection. It must include that Jesus Christ died for you so that you could be reconciled with God. He died on the cross, not because of his sin, but because of your sin. He was placed in a tomb for three days. On that third day, he rose from the grave, demonstrating that the payment for your sin was completely and fully satisfied forever. That's the good news. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus was constantly preaching. You said, you mean, man, that's kind of big-headed. He, he, he preached about himself? Yeah. Okay, when there's nothing bigger than you, you preach on you. you. You got that? And so Jesus would come and he was preaching himself. He was living this out before him. And he even kept telling his disciples and all the people, hey, I'm going to die. 
They're thinking about, hey, can I sit on your left and sit on your right and rule in heaven with you? They're thinking there's going to be this great physical kingdom immediately. And he's sitting there going, guys, I'm going to go and die. I'm going to go and die. And they're not listening. But what is Jesus doing? He's preaching his life and his death. And then he says, I'm also going to rise on the third day. People say, hey, listen, give us a sign that you're truly the Messiah. And he sits there and he says, I will give you but one sign, the sign of Jonah. That he was in the belly of the whale for three days. And then guess what? arise on the third day. Jesus is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we ought to as well. So he preaches the gospel. The second thing, hopefully that's clear. Secondly, he not only preaches the gospel, but he also preaches the kingdom of God. Now, this is probably one of the hardest terms to really get your arms around when we're speaking of the kingdom of God. What in the world does all that entail? Let me try to give you just kind of a simple definition. When I'm speaking of the kingdom of God, which is also found throughout the word of God as the kingdom of heaven, sometimes it's just mentioned kingdom, it's all referring to the same thing, they're used synonymously. When we're speaking about the kingdom of God, we're speaking of that which it refers to God's total and complete sovereign reign over the hearts and lives of his people. At the very basis, that's what it means. It means God's complete and total sovereign reign over the hearts and lives of his people. They recognize him as king, all right? Now, here's what we need to understand with that. With that said, it's clearly, it becomes clearly evident. This kingdom is evident. When he sits back and he says, look, the time is fulfilled. That means in the fullness of time, in the perfect timing, God's perfect timing, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, there's something about to be ushered in. Through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, through the gospel, something new is about to happen. What is that? The kingdom of God is going to begin. It's, it's, it's right upon us. It's, it's just about to happen through what I'm about to do. And so what happens is he says that that, that kingdom is going to be evidenced in three different ways. We read this in the scriptures. Here's how the kingdom of God, God's total and complete sovereign rule in the hearts and lives uh, of his people is manifested. First of all, it's demonstrated, listen to this, through the lives of his people, through the lives of his people. Before you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, who reigns on the throne of our heart? We do, right? We reign. What do we do? We do what's right in our own eyes. We do what we desire. We live how we think is is right to be able to ultimately live. Uh, We are the king uh, of our own lives. When we get saved, what do we do? We fully, completely submit. We get off that throne of our heart, and we say, God, this is not my life. It is not my own. I was purchased with a price. You are God. You rule in my life. How is that manifested? and complete and utter desire to submit fully and completely to all the instructions of God's word. That's how it's evidenced in a believer. And that's what every believer's life looks like. What it looks like is the kingdom of God. It looks as though they are a servant of God and they are humbly bowing saying, speak for your servant is listening. That's how the kingdom of God has come about. That's how it is evidenced today in our world. The second way it's evidenced is in the function of God's church. Now let's just, let's just face it. There are some, and and I say this regrettably, not funny, but there are some messed up churches out there. You you with me? I mean, fighting, bickering, complaining, mean, running the pastor off, pastor running people off, people fighting. Uh, If they would just get away from Wednesday night business meetings, everything would be okay, right? But but, but people are yelling at each other. and, And literally, you're sitting there going, where is the love, people, right? I hate you. You hate me. The carpet should be green. The carpet should be red. It's like the blood of Jesus. And if they're not like the blood of Jesus, you know, and so... Y'all are not connecting with me at all, are you, in the service at all? Are, are you guys with me? If you're with me, then this, 
let me teach you about communication, okay? You have to communicate back with me. This does not bode well with me. This is good for me, all right? So work with me, people, all right? And so what happens is, 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 is in that kingdom, when we come together in all of us individually submitting to God, we not only do it individually, but we do it corporately. And what we do at celebration is this. We say, listen, I know that I have all my own ideas. I know that we all have our own desires. I know we have our own preferences. I know we have our own specific tastes. But when we come together, we all sit there and say, but what's more important than any of that is that we all equally submit under the same God in the same word. That's what we're going to do. We're to do things according to the word of God. Where the word of God is silent, we remain silent. Where it speaks, we're going to speak. That's what we're going to do. And that would really cause a lot of unity within a church if they would all just submit together. So here's how the church comes. They all come and say, listen, we submit to God, but we're also going to submit together before God as a body. We're all individual members. We come to God together as, as the body of Christ. And this is what we do. We love each other. We look out for each other. We sacrifice for each other. We no longer only look out for our own interests, but we recognize the interest of each other. And when the world begins to see this, what are they seeing? They're seeing a group of people submitting themselves underneath the kingship of God. They see a picture of the kingdom of God. You with me? Third aspect, and this is a term, I know when you guys all go home and read all your systematic theology books, you'll probably come across this term. Um, I'm joking. Um, but you'll come across this term. People say it's already but not yet. Have you ever heard that already but not yet? And what it's saying is an aspect of the kingdom of God is here now. It's dwelling in each of us. It's dwelling by our, our submission to God and also with the church. But there is a true physical kingdom that is to come. The Bible says that it will be in its fullest sense, and this is what God is leading up to, that one day every knee shall bow. Listen. One day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, whether wanting to or not wanting to, being made or submissively bowing, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Got that? And then what he's going to do is those who are not in Christ Jesus, those who are unrighteous, will be cast into hell for all eternity. And those who are made righteous, I say made righteous, not righteous. They're made righteous because it's not by their own goodness or righteousness. It's by the righteousness of their master, Jesus Christ. Through him, they're made righteous and they reign in a new heaven and new earth for all eternity. Isn't that awesome? That's the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus was teaching. He's teaching Complete radical transformation of the believer kingdom of God. Complete unity and living for each other, the kingdom of God in the church, and then the future kingdom that was to come. And this is what Jesus taught. Man, he's got some good sermons, does he not? Then we have this. Look, the next two words, repentance and belief. These are the two that most of us would probably be most confident that we have the answer for. But the truth of the matter is that probably causes the most confusion. Uh, let's kind of tackle this idea of repent. Notice this is a part of Jesus' message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. We know what that means. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what does this repent or repentance mean? Let me, let me tell you this. Um, there are some that believe that repentance means to feel guilty or sorry. Okay? Uh, well, I repented. What did you do? Man, I felt terrible for what I did. Matter of fact, I kind of wish I had never done it. You know, that kind of thing. I feel really sorry about what I'm doing. And they believe that's repentance. But stop and think about it. That's not the kind of repentance that he's speaking about here. Because even an unbeliever, somebody who's never been saved by God, uh, can feel sorry for what they do. 
right? They can sit there and because of the consequences go, man, I wish I had never done that before. And they can even walk around feeling this great sense of grief and guilt within them. Why? Romans 1 and 2 tells us that, the, that, the, that all, we all were born with a conscience, right? It's not only Jiminy Cricket that has a conscience. That's why I don't tell jokes. All right, Jiminy Cricket, do you remember him? Let the conscience be your guide. All right, so anyway, um, so I'll move on. Um, so the, the conscience be your guide. Conscience can't always be our guide. Yes, we are created in the image of God, but because of our sin nature, that we can't even completely trust whether our conscience is telling us the truth or not, lying to us. Sometimes we feel better than other times. Sometimes we might be righteous enough. So there's all kinds of confusion in there. But the truth of the matter is, is even those who are lost can feel guilty. That's not repentance. Um, it, it, some would say that it's not just feeling, it's actually saying it. It's saying that I'm guilty. It's saying that I'm sorry. Or, it, or, even, or even to ask for forgiveness. Now, let me suggest something. There is a grief and a sorrow that leads to salvation, but there's also a grief and sorrow that's a worldly so- sorrow that leads to death. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, it tells us this, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So if it's a true godly, a true godly grief, it's going to lead to what repentance actually is. So true repentance is not merely feeling guilty or sorry, and it's not just saying uh, that I'm sorry or even asking for forgiveness. Listen to me on this. Salvation in being saved, yes, you call out for mercy to God, but it's not saying, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. That's not salvation. I can't tell you how many people I have ministered to and talked with, um, especially in Nassau County, where people sit there and say, well, how do you know that you're saved? And they said, I asked God to forgive me. And I'll say, so you've asked God to forgive you? And they're like, yeah, all the time. All the time, every day, I ask God to forgive me. And I'm like, well, how's that, you know, I want to say, how's that working for you? you know? but, but what they're saying is, they're saying, yeah, I ask all the time. Listen, Asking God to forgive you may be an aspect of, sal- of, of, of the gospel, but it's, it's not the gospel. You, you got that? It's not the, the, the full essence of it. That's, that doesn't make you safe, saying, God, I'm sorry. Where is the, it also includes faith, and we're going to get that in just a minute, in belief. Um, but, but notice something for a second. Let me give you a definition, a good definition of what repentance is, and I'll kind of unpack it for you. Gen- repentance is genuine sorrow for sin and an earnest resolution to break with the evil past. So it is exactly what 2 Corinthians 7.10 says. It is a regret of sin, but it drives me away from sin. In other words, in my life, I'm pursuing sin as a lost person, doing sin, doing what's right in my own eyes. True repentance is sitting there and saying, man, this whole time I have been rebelling against my God. I am deserving of death. This sin which seems so attractive to me and wonderful for me, my heart yearned after, even though my flesh still sometimes really desires it. Who I truly am inside of my spirit wants nothing to do with this filth and this garbage. I don't want to pursue this way of sin anymore. I want to flee from it. I want to turn from it. That's what repentance is. Are you with me? Now, stop and think already with this. How many people will sit there and say, yes, I've repented of my sin, but they've never left the track of sin. They've never turned from their sin. Look, 
We have it all the time. How many Christians do you know that believe in Jesus Christ, that got saved when they were a little kid, walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, everything else, and there's no change. They just keep living the same life of sin. And they're sitting there going, look, I know that I'm saved. I know the gospel, right? I believed. And the truth of the matter is they're, they're, they're not saved. They've never repented. But here's the key. The first step is repentance, turning from sin, turning away from it. But it's also belief. It's turning from something to something, having faith in something. You, you guys tracking with me? You guys got that? Because if you just repent, a lot of people repent all the time. Now, let, let me explain what I mean. Is There are a gazillion 12-step programs of repentance. I'm not going to be an alcoholic anymore. So I'm going to repent from that. Do you see what that looks? That's repentance. I'm going to turn from that. I'm no longer going to pursue that anymore. I'm going to turn and go the opposite way. There's all kinds of 12-step repentant programs out there. Okay? So it takes more than just repenting. It's an aspect of it. It's one side of the coin. One side, repentance. The other side, belief. That's what he says in the scriptures. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, the believe is probably the word, the single word, that has caused more people to be shipwrecked and to believe and to follow, find themselves in false conversion than any other word uh, in, in, in the gospel language. Um, one great preacher, um, Charles Spurgeon, said this. He said, I, will, I always cease to try to never use the word believe because in the English it's so misleading. Because how many people have you said, maybe you've tried to share the gospel with somebody and you've come up to them and you've said, hey, listen, uh, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and he rose on the third day? And they're like, yeah, man, I believe that. Do you believe if you were to die without him that you would go to hell? And, and you'd sit there and go, yeah, man. Do you believe he's the savior? Yeah, man, I believe that. Here's the deal. They believe, but what happens? They're sitting back and there's no change. There's no repentance. None of this is real. How do you explain this? Well, I think the way that you explain it is that there's different types of belief. And let me break them down for you, three of them. First of all, there is belief that we refer to as knowledge. Now, this refers to a person that merely knows the facts about something. Here's an example. The example, an atheist professor. You go off to college, right? And all of a sudden, you get out of your little Christian bubble, and, they, and, the, and this guy with all these degrees, this PhD, sits there and goes, Christianity is for morons, right? Jesus is a hack. I'm, I don't believe that. That's what they're saying. You, you following me? And so they get up and they say these things. But here's the deal. They can quote scripture better than you. There are atheist professors who basically know the Bible chapter and verse. They know the Greek. They know the Hebrew. They know the history. They even know what the gospel contains. But they learn it not to become right with God, but to prove or try to prove that this is a bunch of hogwash. You got that? That's knowing something factually. That's a type of belief. The second kind of belief is what we refer to as assent. Now, this goes beyond merely knowing the facts of something, and it recognizes that thing, that something to be true. Okay, let me give you an example, James 2.19. James is writing the book, just like 1 John, uh, so that people would know whether they're truly in the faith or not, whether they're truly born again. 1 John, go back and listen to that. That 1 John series, was he was writing to people that were saved primarily, and he's trying to show them how they can know and be affirmed that their salvation is real. They were doubting. Then James is written to a completely different group of people. He's written to a group of people that are absolutely confident that they're born again and saved because they believe the gospel. And he's writing them going, your belief is ridiculous. You're not saved. He even says in chapter 2 in verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one? He says, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. In other words, what he's saying is, 
you may believe it. It goes more than just understanding it in the mind. It's, it's actually a belief system. He says, all the stuff that you say you believe about God, the demons believe. Look, have you ever thought about that? That the demons know their theology and Bible much better than you and I do? You guys got that, right? So the demons, do they believe absolutely without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was the Son of God? Yes. Why? Colossians tell us they were created by him. Okay, you guys tracking with me? Do this. You guys, I'm losing. I'm losing you. Come back, all right? It, this is just Bible, okay? All right? So maybe I need to entertain. Listen to me, all right? I'll do something to try to draw you in, all right? So, so what we find is, <laughs> that was weird. Okay, I, I apologize for that. I thank God we're not podcasting video. Oh, we do have something. All right, don't do it. Keep your hand off the record button. It's too late. All right, so what we have is this, is we find that, that here in the, uh, I don't even know where I am. Um, so we, oh, the second thing is this ascent. So what we find is he says, he says the demons know this stuff. They believe that Jesus was the son of God. They believe that Jesus died on the cross to redeem believers, to re- redeem his people. Do you know that? They know that he rose from the dead. The majority of them were there. And if they weren't there, guess what? Word spread quick that Jesus was alive and well because it, it confirmed their eventual doom. And so they know all of these things, but here's the thing. He says, but they have the sense to actually tremble over what they know. And he goes, and a lot of you know it, and you don't even take it very seriously. It's kind of the point of what James is saying. So here's the point, and this is where you could, will meet people, not only in this church, but all churches around Nassau County, and people who aren't even in church, they will sit back and tell you, I am saved. How do you know? Because I know that Jesus died for me. I know he did. But the Bible says that that's not enough. There's another kind of knowledge, another kind of faith, belief, that is required for salvation. And that is what we call confidence. This refers to someone who knows the gospel as a fact. He believes it to be true. But then he lives in light of that truth. He knows it as a fact. He believes it in his heart. But he allows the belief to transform his very life and the way that he lives because he has confidence, that much confidence in that truth. Let me give you an example. How many of you have ever seen Doomsday Preppers? I know some of you have, even if you're not going to admit it. Don't admit it. Admit it. Somebody admit it. Have you ever seen it? All right, thank you, brother. I got a witness. Now, here's the idea with doomsday preppers. These folks believe that the apocalypse is upon us. They believe it's going to end sometime this end year. Praise Jesus if it does, amen? You're like, well, I'm not so sure, right? Yeah, it's cool, all right? The older you get, the more you're like, all right, Jesus, all right, come on, right? And and so (laughs) the other ones are like, man, I haven't gotten married yet. No, wait, I, I was there. Yeah, I was there. I'm getting off track. So here we are, doomsday preppers. In doomsday preppers, this is what happens in this. These people believe that the end of the world is at hand, and what do they find? They are preparing for it, for doomsday. Doomsday preppers, right? So what they've done is many of them used to work in New York City or Chicago or whatever. They moved out of there. They went to North Dakota, South Dakota, Yulee. They're going to really remote places uh, where nobody can find them. And, uh, and so they're going to all these remote places, and they're digging bunkers, and, they're, and, and then they have a, like, a, like a bomb shelter, and they're, they're finding ways to purify water. Their children and their kids are wearing military gear. They're learning to put sniper, you know, stuff. I don't even know what you call that. What do you call it? 
camouflage, thank you, whatever, on their, on their face. Um, they're, they're getting gas masks. They're doing drills, you know. Um, this kind of makes me feel bad because we homeschool, but they're homeschoolers too, right? And so, you know, when they have bomb drills, they're like, get under your homeschool desk, ah! You know, and they're all, you know, you know jumping under there. Y'all with me? And so they're all ready for this, and, and, and they're, they're, they're preparing as much as they can. Now, what's interesting is they gave up jobs. They gave up their life. They gave up... Their, their, what they do with their money has changed. Their vocabulary has changed. What they think about constantly changes. What they spend their time doing completely changes. Why? Because they have full and complete confidence that what they believe is true. That, look at me, that is saving faith. Not all this easy believism garbage. Not, it cannot be faith without repentance. It cannot be true belief without it radically changing and shifting the direction of your life, period. That's the gospel. That's the truth of God's word. And so that's the message that has to go in here and it has to go throughout Nassau County because every Billy Bob, Joe Bob, whatever is sitting there going, I'm a believer. I know it and I believe it. But has it changed you? The evidence is never, we've shared with our children that when they come to faith, and what a joyous time that is, when you see that and you see the Spirit of God work down in their life and convict them of sin, and then call out for the mercy of God, what a wonderful time that is in life. And you've been seeing God work in their lives like that. And one thing that I tell our children is as wonderful as those events were in that time where you just see them calling out for God's mercy, I said, you cannot put your faith in that event. If you look back to that time when you cried out to mercy for God, but you move on from this particular time in your life and you don't live for God and you don't seek God and you don't submit to God, you can have no confidence that anything occurred on that day. That's why even here at Celebration, and you probably have been raised hearing this all the time, you have heard people say constantly, hey, do you remember the second, the date, and the hour that you were saved? And then here in Nassau County, if you remember, stamp past. I could care less if you remember the second, the day, or the hour. What I want to know is what do you believe now and has it radically changed your life? That's the truth. And some of you today need to be saved. Some of you today need to get right. Some of you today need to get the true gospel that Jesus preached into your hearts to be transformed in the image and likeness of his son. Will you respond? Jesus, we thank you. We love you today. God, I've gone long.